welcome back to another episode of the Annick Castle podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Watkins, and on today's episode, we're talking not just Annick Castle, but castles in general, with the architectural historian and author, John Goodall. John has written extensively on castles, and on Annick Castle in particular, and so it was fascinating to speak to him about the importance of castles in British history, their dominance in the popular imagination, and the role that Annick in particular has played in the story of castles in England and in Britain. Here is our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I am very happy to be joined on this episode of the Annick Castle podcast by John Goodall. He's a historian, author, and architectural editor of Country Life magazine, and 10 years ago he wrote a book called The English Castle. This year sees his latest book, The Castle, A History, released. How are you, John? I'm very well, Daniel. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. And we should really start with castles generally. What is it to you that's so fascinating about castles? Well, I love being in different places. I travel all the time for my work. And there's something very special, I think, about travelling around Britain and, of course, Europe at large and visiting castles. They're tremendously evocative places. Often, if they're ruins, they're wonderful landscape settings as well. They seem to be a very memorable way of travelling around the countryside and seeing it and connecting yourself to the past and to the place. Wherever you go, these magnificent buildings, uh, sometimes not so magnificent anymore, but uh, you can always conjure them up in your mind's eye and try and imagine what they were like in the past. They, uh, they are something that's quite dominant in people's imaginations, as well as physically, especially in Northumberland. There are a lot of castles in that part of the country. How did they come to be so famous, I suppose, is the word? Well, it's fascinating with the Percy family, particularly, of course, that owned Annick Castle. They owned a whole series of castles right down into Yorkshire. A number of them are now ruined or partially ruined. And even in the 16th century, one royal clerk who was in the process of confiscating them from the family (laughs) described them as the glasses whereby the locals can define themselves in the landscape. They punctuated the landscape and they were the buildings that marked out this huge landscape. And the royal clerk was astonished by them. You know, he talked about them as extraordinary objects, extraordinary works of architecture. And I think you have to try and reimagine that. But in Northumberland, up to a point, I think also you can still see it. You can still see the relationship of these castles, their relative scale, their prominence in the landscape from you know, Annick and Walkworth, which are both, of course, Percy castles, but also Dunstanborough on the coast and a host of smaller buildings as well. They still do in rural Northumberland mark out this landscape and make it distinctive. They are the buildings from which the powerful of not just the Middle Ages, but subsequently too, have commanded this landscape. And you can see that very clearly in the buildings themselves. Yeah, they really do. I grew up in Walkworth and obviously work at Annick Castle now. So my entire life has, I don't think I've ever lived anywhere that hasn't had a castle with it. The shadow of the castle. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I don't think it's that rare in Northumberland either. Your new book is The Castle, A History. And when does that history begin? When did these castles, as we understand them, first appear 
in England or elsewhere? And did anything precede them? Well, in the, the castle itself, it's quite clear that it is really a, a, an imposition on the landscape that arrives in England with the Normans, who are familiar with castles. They're a phenomenon of the um, breakup of the Carolingian Empire on the continent, and they're linked to a, a system of landholding, whereby land is partitioned up between specialist fighters called knights, <laughs> and they need enough land that allows them to train themselves, to arm themselves with horses and armour, or very expensive objects, and they enter the following of a, a great lord, and castles are basically a, a product of this landholding system. They're where this lordly class lived and the basis from which they fought. And in England, castles come into being at the conquest. They are very quickly established across the full extent of England and, of course, push into its borders, trying to secure the borders in Wales and also up into Scotland. So they are a phenomenon of the really of the 11th century. But then one of the points I'm trying to make in this history is that they have an enormously long shadow in English history. Really, castles still operate in some cases as they were founded in the Middle Ages. You think, for example, of the Queen in Windsor Castle. It's one of the paradoxes of castles. They're begun as places from which to fight, but every generation needed to keep its castles up to date, up fashionable. <laughs> and Winter Castle, although no one would try and defend it today, is very much still a castle. Annick is similar in that regard. Sometimes called the Windsor of the North, it's another one that changed from that defensive to a more domestic purpose in the 18th and 19th centuries as it was restored. Is that something that was quite common for larger castles, or is it very special cases like Windsor and Annick? It is relatively unusual, but I suppose the point to make about both these places is that castles are the institutions where the very greatest noblemen and women live. And of course, Annick, in a curious sense, does survive to be remodelled by the skin of its teeth. It is um, this is an extraordinary episode in the 18th century or the late 17th century where the direct line of the Percy family dies out and the property of the family, these great estates, pass through the female line um, into a new creation. And it's the, the woman in this, in this particular case who is fascinated by her ancestral history. And she is the person that revives Annick, who has the other Percy castles that she's aware of surveyed, and essentially recreates Annick as a, a, a centre of her dynasty and history. So that's an extraordinary episode but each family who, you know, which still occupies castles has a figure like this who has sort of saved the history and made the building continue into the present. And in Britain today, there are other families. I think, let's say, the Barclay family in Barclay Castle. That family has been resident in that castle since at least the 12th century. It's absolutely extraordinary continuities. So we tend to think of castles often as ruins. In fact, I've sort of referred to them already as that. But I mean, part of the point is that there are lots of ruins. Lots of castles have passed into total obscurity. Some castles, we don't even know what they were originally called. They were ruined even in the Middle Ages. But there is this surviving group of buildings that have just persevered through generation after generation after generation. And Annick is one of the greatest examples of that. 
And it's one of the reasons it's so important and interesting is that this family has thrown cash at it, you know, at intervals in enormous quantities. And the scale of the landscape at Annick is not just a castle, it's a whole landscape with its parks for the aristocratic pleasure of hunting. It's an enormous creation. Uh, and the town, of course, too, is, as you described with yourself at Walkworth, the town, too, is bound into that creation at Annick in the Middle Ages. And it still is a very important part of the castle's landscape. It really is. There's not just the parkland around the castle. There's Hun Priory. There's Annick Abbey, there's the Bondgate Tower in the town, which if you've ever visited the castle and you've driven through the town of Annick, you've probably gone under that 15th century arch. And there are all these traces of the medieval period of Annick and the castle, wherever you look when you visit. But is it because of those individuals in the Percy family that the importance of the castle extends beyond the medieval? Or is there something more structural? It's difficult to sort of disaggregate those two things. I think there is something structural that preserves the castle. It is the way, you know, the castle is the centrepiece of this landscape and the economic life of the area. But there's also a sense in which the individuals and the family do determine the future of the castle. And I think Annick is very interesting in this regard, because in the late 15th century, I think it's quite possible but there was a moment where Walkworth might have become the castle where the Percy family actually decided to reside permanently rather than Annick. So Annick is sort of a building revived. The other thing I think it's important to think of specifically with regard to Annick is the connection of the castle and the Percys too with the image of a lion rampant. I mean, as you know, that <laughs> the lion turns up everywhere in Annick. It really does. And it's, you know, the Lion of the North. And we do actually know that the Percy family, obviously knights have as their emblems coats of arms. And there is a fascinating episode in the mid-14th century where the Percy of the day, they're all called Henry Percy, as you yes, know. Yes, they are. <laughs> yep. Confusingly. He, uh, in, in Walkworth, he takes his seal, which has his existing family arms on it, and he smashes the seal. And he assumes in its place the lion rampant. And this is, of course, in the middle of the Anglo-Scottish Wars. And I think it's very clear that he's assuming the role of the lion of the north. And that coat of arms becomes the Percy coat of arms and is ubiquitous. And even in the 17th century, when James I and VI passes through Annick, uh, the Earl Percy of the time, the Earl of Northumberland at the time, is in prison uh, in the Tower of London. And his steward describes the king passing through Walkworth and enigmatically staring up at the keep of the castle, which, of course, has a great lion carved on one side, and makes this enigmatic comment. The king looks at it, stares at it very hard, and says, this lion holds up this castle. And the nobleman and his company walk round the castle, and they accuse the steward of neglecting it, and they say they've never seen a more magnificent building so appallingly treated. And the steward says, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you get this rather wonderful image of the steward reporting back to the earl and describing the king seeing this building and being struck too by the imagery of the lion and his court by the splendour of the castle that it holds up. It's a 
very poetic image and the lion does survive around Annick Castle. You see it on the towers, you see the lion bridge just to the north of the castle as well. And not just Annick, but other castles have inspired writers and poets for centuries, people like Walter Scott as a visitor to the castle in 1827. And how have castles affected other aspects of the arts and culture and literature through the centuries? They're not just buildings, are they? No, well, I think one of the fascinating things that happens in castles generally is that uh, although we know now that they're founded in the Norman Conquest, even within 200 years of the Norman Conquest, nobody really knows where these great buildings come from. And they become bound into the foundation myths of Britain. And so buildings such as the White Tower at London are credited to the construction of Julius Caesar, for example. And other castles are connected to completely fictional figures. The giant Beavis is meant to have founded, for example, Arundel Castle in Sussex. And at Warwick, uh, there's this figure, very popular romantic figure of 14th century chivalric romance called Guy of Warwick. One of the castle towers is actually named after him. So castles very quickly become bound into the legends and foundation myths of Britain. And of course, that's a really fascinating point of continuity with the way in which many people today regard castles. When you see castles in contemporary films, they are evocations partly of fantasy. And so when people like myself, who've obviously visited lots and lots of castles, I tend to think of castles as real things, representing a real historic past. But there is also a very long tradition of castles representing the fantastical, the legendary. And when you see Sleeping Beauty's castle in a Disney film, for example, you are actually seeing something that was uh, familiar too in the Middle Ages, that the castle of fantasy. Um, and that has a, a continuity uh, throughout as well. And is this where things like Camelot start to gain prominence as an idea? Because I assume there was not a physical Camelot anywhere. Though people believe there was. I mean, uh, so Windsor is identified by the 14th century as Camelot. And it's very complicated understanding quite how people regarded these things, because I think it's easy to think that the people in the Middle Ages were credulous about this. But the analogy I would draw is indeed with Harry Potter, which was partly filmed at Annick, that there are lots and lots of people who go to King's Cross and stand with half a trolley in the wall underneath a sign saying platform nine and three quarters. Now, I don't think anybody really believes that platform nine and three quarters exists, but it's nevertheless, people come to a real place to identify with a thing they know is completely fictional. And in just the same spirit, of course, I think people looked at buildings such as Windsor and saw them as the seat of King Arthur. So there is an ambiguity there. It's a kind of delicious ambiguity as well, something you can play with. It's a really interesting idea. And that is an ambiguity, I think, that you can feel at, at Annick too. Yeah, it's a combination of what's physically in front of you and it fires up your imagination and not just with the filmic connections but a lot of people can look at those walls and towers and they can imagine what the middle ages what the medieval period might have been like and how active and busy the castle site might have been 600 700 years ago when they're going on a guided tour or something like that and what are some of those more interesting periods for Annick Castle how does it link into British history over the centuries, what role does it play? 
Well, it is, of course, very important in a whole sequence of uh, connections. But I mean, some of the moments where it moves into the national stage, there is the capture of uh, William the Lion of Scotland beneath the walls of Annick Castle in the 1170s, um, which is uh, a hugely important political event in politics as in chess, losing a king is a catastrophe. Yes, and um, this is this is a particularly important <laughs> um, uh, moment. I think uh, also, of course, in the 14th century, I mean, the Percy family move their interests. They're really a family after the conquest with interests principally in Yorkshire, and it's the outbreak of hostilities with Scotland and England's early advantage in that that bring the Percy family decisively north in 1309 when they really redevelop an existing castle at Annick, but they rebuild it on a massive scale. And much of the building you see today dates from their expansion of the castle in the early 14th century. And at that time, they are involved in the very aggressive assertion of English rights in Scotland, and they extend their powers a long way north. That, of course, continues to apply really right through until the, the, the 15th century. There's a long period in the 16th century when the Percy family are in trouble as Catholics, they lose a lot of property. And one of the Earls, of course, is in prison for a long time, as I've mentioned already, into the early 17th century. And then you have this resurgence of the castle in the 18th century. And that, in turn, is a sort of fascinating reflection on Percy family history. Then, again, almost immediately after it's rebuilt, in the 19th century, it's the object of one of the most important castle restorations of the mid-century, under the direction of the architect Anthony Salvin, um, who remodels the castle broadly in the form that we see today as part of a kind of colossal reorganisation of the building at unbelievable expense with these Italianate interiors, a whole workforce brought from Italy to furnish the interior of the castle in the most splendid style um, of, of joinery um, imaginable. So a whole, it's repeatedly, recurrently important. And that's very typical of castles. They have kind of moments when they're favoured and moments when they're not favoured. And Annika at the moment, very much still favoured. <laughs> yes, I hope so. And, and for, for the future as well, yes. Absolutely. And if you were at Annick Castle, what would be the features, architecturally or otherwise, that stand out for you? What are the most significant parts of Annick that you would want people to see? Well, I certainly think the exteriors and moving round um, the exteriors of the building are, are particularly significant. So the main gatehouse with its barbican, with the lion seated over the barbican, that's at the site of another historical drama when Henry IV is trying to force the earls Percy and their um, adherents to surrender the castle, and they refuse to do so. So there's the, the, the outer gatehouse and then the inner gatehouse of what is often called the keep, with its coats of arms, and also the wonderful figures of fighting men in stone on the battlements. That, that gatehouse uh, s seems to celebrate an English victory over the Scottish at Hallidon Hill, uh, there are the, these extraordinary carved figures of men firing crossbows and throwing stones, which actually inhabit the battlements. And then, of course, the interior. I do love the interior, but it's a weird disjunction because you do go from a medieval baronial fortress to essentially an Italian palace of the high Victorian period. 
it's a really splendid series of interiors and, and, and if it's not strange to say so on this particular podcast, the dining room with its double portrait of the 18th century Duke and Duchess of, of Northumberland who transformed the castle and, and its amazing uh, green livery is extraordinary uh, to see. So uh, an incredibly rich castle. And although there's a disjunction stylistically, I think that contrast is appropriate because in the Middle Ages too, these buildings were gaunt on the outside and splendid uh, on the inside. So you can appreciate it in a slightly different way at Annick. Yes, and the first Duke and Duchess have pride of place over the fireplace and the chimney piece in the dining room. So you can't help but see them and know who it was that continued the story of the castle. And of course, if you visit the Constable's Tower exhibition, you can see John speaking about the significance of the Constable in our exhibition there. That's one of the areas that's been more or less untouched since the medieval period. It didn't get that huge restoration that the inner gatehouse and the keep got. And the park buildings too. I mean, when they are accessible, Hull and Priory, the tower is absolutely magnificent to see. And the gatehouse of Annick uh, Abbey, which you've mentioned, uh, they are magnificent things in their own right. But moving away from Annick briefly, what are some of your favourite other castles? Obviously, we'll assume that Annick is near the top, but what are some of your top castle buildings, either in Britain or further afield? Well, I have to say they're nearly all in the north. Walkworth is a very particular favourite. I just think the way the town and the castle stand together and the little boat's journey you can do in the summer to the Hermitage, which is cut out of rock on the uh, River Coquette just below it, are experiences far beyond what most people expect. They're magnificent things. It's so wonderful. And another castle which I was very fortunate to be um, educated in partly is at Durham, the Castle of the Bishops of Durham. And of course, it's part of one of the most spectacular compositions of medieval buildings to be seen anywhere in Europe, with the castle and the cathedral eyeballing each other across the extent of Palace Green. And there's nothing like having sustained experience of buildings, I think, to make you love them. And of course, Durham Castle has every phase of uh, development from the Norman Conquest with its Norman Chapel all the way through to the 17th century remodelling and the 19th century remodelling of the building as a university college when Durham University is founded in the 1830s. I would say there are probably three favourite castles, including Annick. Um, And for the joy of of travelling on the coast, I think Dunstanborough and Bamborough are pretty hard to beat. (laughs) Again, neighbours of Annick. Yeah, we have got a good region of the country for these buildings, I think. Unquestionably so. (laughs) And that probably brings us to the end of our conversation. Before you go, John, would you like to tell our listeners anything about your latest book? The latest book that I've written is trying to be a much shorter and more accessible history of the castle that looks at the castle from the beginning to the present day. And it touches on some of the themes I've spoken about today. And it tries to look at the story of the castle through anecdotes, really, people writing about them at moments in history as living eyewitness contemporaries of the events they describe. And it tries to chart the way in which people have perceived the castle in different ways. So um, hopefully it's a a fun and engaging book and it will help people see castles not just as medieval buildings, but as fixtures in the landscape, partly as houses, partly as fictional things, partly as ruins, 
and as historical uh, remains. So it's it, it's trying to chart the full complexity of that story. Whereas, of course, my previous book was uh, a much heavier volume, which is just trying to look at them up until 1650. But this is hopefully a, a, an easier and a lighter read for those who are interested, but not necessarily committed <laughs> to the study of architecture. I will certainly be giving it a read and we'll hopefully see you at Annick Castle sometime soon again. But for now, uh, John Goodall, thank you very much for joining us. Daniel, thank you very much indeed. It was excellent to talk to John Goodall about castles and Annick Castle in particular. And if you'd like to read more, John's latest book, The Castle, A History, is available now in all good bookshops. If you're visiting Annick Castle, you'll be able to see John speaking about the Constable's Tower in our Constable's Tower exhibition. If you enjoyed this episode of the Annick Castle podcast, you can get in touch with us and let us know on Twitter at Annick Castle or by emailing podcast at annickcastle.com. If you did enjoy it, please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, and give us a review or a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Waldemar Januszczak to talk about Annick Castle's art collection. Until then, I've been Daniel, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye!